0: is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, starting at verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip Bartholomew, Matthew Thomas, James son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, "'Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied.'" Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort, woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, If anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you.
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, If you're like me, there's a lot of things on your mind. If you want to talk about state assembly stuff, let's keep that till later. Happy to talk about that later. For now, we want to concentrate on this part of the Bible, and I'm going to pray that that's what we do. In the notices sheet, you'll see there's a sermon outline, and that may help um, follow along. Uh, If you're a note-taking person, perhaps that might be somewhere you can take notes and jot down questions and things you want to chase up later too. But how about we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this part of... Your word in the Bible. We just ask that you would speak to our hearts now. We pray that you would be at work in us. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just hear these things, but that you would help us to understand how they apply to our lives and how we need to change, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The way you walk can reveal a fair bit about you and how you're feeling and who you are. Um, Lyndall and I, we were on the way way back from Katoomba um, two weekends ago, on the 16th and Sunday evening at Brisbane Airport, we could tell just by looking at the way people were walking, we could tell that they had also been at Katoomba. Yeah. You can tell if someone's attempted um, the Ultra Trail, you can tell by the way they're walking. It's a very stiff-legged kind of walk which could be mistaken for someone needing the toilet. So how do you know that that's not what they needed? Well. There's other telltale signs, like perhaps the fact that they've got socks and these really soft spongy thongs on. That's another telltale sign. Or maybe that they've got a uh, finisher's t-shirt on that's a bit of a giveaway. But the way we walk says a whole lot about us. Maybe what our interests are, what we like, who we are. The way we talk shows a lot about us. Um, So does the way we behave towards other people. The things that you place your value in, it all, put all that together, it speaks volumes about who we really are. In our passage, Jesus tells his disciples what should mark them out, what should make them stand out as being his disciples, people that follow him. And so as Christians, as we read this, yeah, we're reading how, well, what we should look like, how we should be walking. Last week, you gave, uh, Luke gave us this glimpse at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and we saw their hard legalistic, judgmental attitude. We saw them out to trap Jesus, out to think the worst of Jesus, to catch him out, to want to harm him. And in contrast, you see Jesus being presented by Luke as the Lord of the Sabbath, quick to do good, caring and compassionate and full of kindness. And so with that contrast in your mind, now Luke shows us what a follower of Jesus will be like. Um, Jesus changes his followers. He transforms them. So we're diving into Luke's gospel, chapter six, verses 12 through to the end of the chapter. And the passage opens in verse 12 that Debbie's just read for us with uh, telling us that Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray. We've already heard a number of times Jesus goes to the wilderness to pray. Here he is this time on a mountainside praying. Um, Previously, uh, this time though in verse 12, it looks like he's prayed all night. On and off all night, maybe? Constantly all night? I don't know. Luke just says he prayed all night. And in the morning, he calls all his disciples together and then he singles out 12 of them from this gathering group of disciples. Singles out twelves, declares them to be apostles. That's like saying he chose them to represent him, to be his ambassadors. And if you were a Jew, you'd realize that 12 is significant. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It's like a statement that Jesus is making as he picks out 12 they're a mixed bunch. One of them is called Judas. And Luke says, or well, tells us, he's the one who will betray Jesus. And as you read that, you think, well, maybe that's why he prayed all night. Luke's already indicated to us that Jesus knows what's to come. He knows that he is the suffering servant. He knows that as the Messiah, he will suffer. You saw back in um, chapter three and four, Satan's looking for every opportunity to tempt Jesus. Maybe that's what the all-night prayer was about, knowing that he had to pick these 12, including Judas, perhaps. Next thing Luke tells us is that Jesus starts telling his disciples how to walk as his followers. So verse 17 says there's more than just the 12. There's a lot of disciples, and then there's a whole load of other people as well. They've come from a wide area, From it says from Judea, from way down near Jerusalem in the south, from way up in Tyre and Sidon in the north. If you kind of add cars to the mix and think travel time. It's kind of like from Sydney to Brisbane, from Brisbane to Cairns, people over that sort of scope of area, but without the internet or quick Facebook communication or whatever. This is a massive crowd of people gathered. They've come for all sorts of different reasons. In verse 18, they've come to hear Jesus. They've come to be healed by Jesus. They've come to have evil spirits cast out of them. All they had to do in verse 19 was just touch Jesus. It's like he was leaking power and that grabs our attention. We want to know more, but that's not what Luke is here to tell us about. He's here to tell us, or he's here writing for Theophilus to show Theophilus the certainty of the things he's heard, to show Theophilus Jesus is the Messiah. And so this, this amazing miracle stuff just, well, we keep moving on. The crowd around Jesus is no surprise, but in verse 20, it says, looking at his disciples, he said. So he's surrounded by a crowd of people, but he's talking to those who would want to follow him. Jesus spoke to those who've made a commitment to want to follow him. That's reinforced in verse 27, where Jesus says, to you who are listening. He's talking at this crowd, but he's speaking to the ones who will listen to him. In fact, listening to Jesus and doing what he says is where Luke lands this part of of his gospel. So if you look ahead at the end of the passage from verse 46, it's all about this challenge in verse 46 to listen and do. And in then verse 47, it goes, "I'll show you what it is like. Um, I'll show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words, and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep, and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck the house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But one who hears my words, and does not put them into practice." is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. It's a well-known parable. You, know, you, you hear about it. If you ever go to Sunday school, you hear this one. It's an easy one to, to tell the kids about. The wise man builds his house on a rock and the foolish man builds his house on the, on the sand. It's the same, the same story. The firm foundation that Jesus has in mind, it's there. The firm foundation is hearing his word putting it into action. The Firm foundation is hearing and doing. And I mean, we know how important foundations are. We've had in our area, people are knocking down houses and rebuilding. They did one just across the road and you could see what they did. They cleared the block, they drew it down, they put concrete in these holes that became the, 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 the foundation for the, the pouring of a, of a concrete slab and then up go the walls. If you get the foundation wrong, it'll move. The concrete will crack the walls will move, you'll even have a crooked roof. And here, in verses 48 and 49, there's a torrent of water that comes through and wipes out the house. If you've got a bad foundation, humanly speaking, there's nothing you can do. It's going to be destroyed. But in most cases, when the foundations are poor, you get a bit of warning. The cracks appear. And you can do what another neighbour in our street, we've got a very busy street as far as construction goes. This is a long time ago, but we had another neighbour who had to have underpinning done. They dug down each side of the walls, put in new foundations, put metal in and lifted up the walls that had moved, restoring the foundations, underpinning work. In most cases, you get a chance to, to have a look at the footings and, and repair these things. But enough structural engineering advice. The point is, we know that firm foundations may matter. And Jesus' point is, we need to build our lives on a firm foundation and the foundation he has in mind it's not just hearing his word but doing it putting it into practice I mean we know how important foundations are for life I mean if you've got kids you try to teach them everything you know and then they go after school and then you would discover how good you are as a parent as they start to mix with other kids and so on or I mean education itself how important is that to have good foundations so that you can do something after school that those things are true but Jesus has a bigger picture in mind he's thinking not just life. He's thinking eternity, foundation for eternity. And the foundation he wants his followers to build on is his words. So as followers of Jesus, that's us. We want to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus's words. I mean, that's why reading the Bible is important. That's why reading the Bible for yourself is important. Trying to understand it, trying to work out how it applies prayerfully reading God's word. That's why coming to church is important that's why when we do come to church we have the kids head out to kids church or KBC kids on there so where they can be taught at their own age that's why we as as adults stay in here with with the high schoolers and have a look at god's word and try to understand it for ourselves have it explained and applied it's all about building the foundation a nice firm foundation for eternity for our lives for eternity Um, and that's why bible teaching churches matter so jesus he's talking to his disciples to anyone in this crowd of people who will listen. He wants them to build firm foundations by listening to his word and putting them into practice. And as followers of Jesus, when you do that, you expect your life will change. The way you walk will change. And so come back to the start of the passage and see how that works. So back at verse 20, we'll change in what we value. As you look from verse 20 on, you look at these verses, they sound very familiar to what you might read in Matthew's gospel, what's been become known as a sermon on the mount but you'll see in verse 17 Luke likes to do things differently here Jesus is speaking on a level place and you know perhaps he found a level place on this mountain more likely it's a different time and Jesus is saying the same sort of things he always says to his disciples but look at what he says from verse 20 Um, becoming a follower of Jesus it'll change what you value you'll be looking forward looking ahead to the kingdom of God so that even when things are rough now You know where your hope is. So notice the way the tenses work. Verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You're in. It's yours now. Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. What you're experiencing now is not all. There's better to come. Um, uh, uh, Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. You see what Jesus is saying? It might be rough now, but you have so much to look forward to. He's saying you're you're already in the kingdom of God. You're included. And you're living for that kingdom of God. Your hope is in heaven. What is important to you is the kingdom of God. That word blessed, it's it's kind of a hard word for us to translate. Some versions put happy in there, which is doesn't really do justice to it. Um, you might want to think you're know, lucky or fortunate, but that doesn't really do the job for us either. It's this idea of having the good life, having everything that's of value, blessed. And you look at verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man. You see the way Jesus is talking, it's, it's kind of a, a rhetoric. It, it's a way of speaking. He's talking big picture. Um, he's not saying you must be miserable now if you're in the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's like this. You need to value this. It's the big picture here. Um, It's more important, he's saying, to belong to Jesus than to be happy in this life. It's more important to belong to Jesus than have everything sorted and be everyone's friend. Um, sometimes it's helpful to state the opposite, just so there's no confusion, just so things are crystal clear. And I think verse 24, omers does that. It states it in the reverse. So verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you already have received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Is that saying Christians can't be rich, can't be happy? Can't... It's not. It's this rhetoric, this way of speaking, making things black and white when in fact they're gray. Um, as a follower of Jesus, our values will change. What is important to us will change. We won't be living for comfort. We won't be living for riches. We'll be living for the kingdom of God. And if you think about that in today's world, yeah, Christian values are increasingly at odds with the world around us. It feels like we keep standing out as different because of our values. Um, As followers of Jesus, we won't value worldly riches or worldly success or worldly popularity like most of the others around us. We will stand out as strange, stiff-legged people walking oddly. We'll recognize each other because of the way we walk. We will be persecuted. Um, In verse 23, Jesus mentions the Old Testament prophets. In the past, the prophets were persecuted. And as followers of the Messiah, verses 22 and 23, we can expect the same, I think is what he's saying. And that's echoed again in the flip side in verse 26. Woe to you when men, when all men or all people speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated false prophets. It's the false prophets that you know, make everything sound nice and positive and are friends with everybody. When you preach the gospel, you're not going to be friends with everybody. It's the false prophets that say what itching ears want to hear. They're the ones... That'll have all the popularity. So what Jesus says to his disciples that day, yeah, it applies to us too. We're followers of Jesus, um, and we want to hear this, take it to heart, and put it into practice. We want to be building on the firm foundation of Jesus' words. So we put our hope in Jesus, not in the things of this life. We value Jesus. We value the kingdom of God over everything that's good in this world. And as we do that, yeah, we are blessed. We do have the good life. And um, that's the first way I think we can expect to change as followers of Jesus. Our values will change. Everything gets turned upside down. You keep working through the passage and the next bit seems to be saying we'll also change in the way that we love or the way that we treat other people. So verse 27 goes, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. This is the same sort of rhetorical way of speaking, this sort of um, hyperbole that Jesus is using. It continues through here. He's talking in extremes, but the point's clear. You've got to be different in the way that you treat other people. You've got to be prepared to even love your enemy. Love them in terms of what's good for them, wanting to see them in heaven with you, that kind of love. Uh, It goes on in verse 29. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop them from taking your tunic give to everyone who asks you and if anyone takes what belongs to you do not demand it back the point is that as followers of Jesus you will be remarkably different in how you treat other people trick though with verses like this um, some people are keenly aware of their own failings and some people for example if you are a Christian in an abusive relationship you read a verse like this and you think crumbs what can I do I think we need to encourage, if it's you, encourage you. If it's someone else, encourage them to be reading this in the the genre that it is, to understand the big picture here. It's hyperbole. It's extreme rhetoric. It's similar to what you'll see ahead in chapter 14 where Jesus says, anyone who comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's extreme language to make a point. You've got to put Jesus first it's the same here. Love your enemies, he's saying, stand out as being different in the way you treat people who are your enemies. Um, When he says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, don't become obsessed with chasing after your own rights. And so, I don't know, if you're someone in a difficult relationship, the loving thing, the loving thing will be to do what's best even for the person who is abusing you and that will be get help for them. Get yourself out of there but you'll do that in a way that's distinctively Christian with this big picture in mind, this concern for their salvation. So keep the, the way this is written in mind, but yes, we want to stand out as being massively different in the way that we love even our enemies. We have a different set of values. It will change the way we treat other people. In verse 31, maybe this is the summary perhaps, do to others as you would have them do to you and you'll see that echo through as you keep reading down through the passage. Um, it feels like a bit of a change of tact from um, showing... The, Jesus is now talking about how we should love those who are not lovable, maybe, as you keep reading. There's different you know, flavors of love, isn't there? There's kind of friendship kind of love. There's romantic love. There's um, just natural affection. There's unmerited love, undeserved love, unearned love, love that comes about because the one showing love just chooses to show love. And that's the kind of love that God has shown to us in Jesus we didn't do anything to deserve it it's all from God's side his love for us God loved us enough to send his son to become one of us to live the perfect life and die for our sins God loved us like that when we didn't deserve it that's the kind of love God has shown us and as a follower of Jesus we want to see a bit of that overflowing from us don't you We want to show the same kind of love. So verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Um, And if you you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect a repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to, to get anything back. And then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. If you become a follower of Jesus, we listen to these words and we go to put them in practice. It'll change the way that we love. It'll change the way we love the unlovable. Change the way we care for other people. We'll love like God's loved us. There's another change, I think, from verse 37 the way we view others, the way we judge others or don't judge others. So verse 37 says, do not judge and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured out in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Can you see a little echo of verse 31 coming through? I don't think, as you look at that, we're being told not to discriminate. You can discriminate in a positive way. I think we're being told not to be judgmental, not to write people off, not to do what you saw the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord doing in last week's passage. Um, We need to have a kind of humility that recognizes, as we look at other people, that could be me. And so I think that's what comes out in verse 39. He told them another parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? A student is not above his, his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, oh, let me get the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. You can see the point, can't you? This humility, you're not judging other people, you're recognizing it could be you too. This, this attitude of generousness to other people If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then yeah, we need to be like that, slow to judge. And I reckon the longer you mix around Christians at church, I reckon the easier it is for this sort of judgmental attitude to creep in. And you can write people off because of things they do do or don't do when we shouldn't be like that as followers of Jesus. If we're doing that, we need to stop. We need to do the underpinning work, fix the foundations. Um, so we're looking at Jesus' discipleship training, speaking to those who have become his followers, speaking to them in the hearing of the multitude of people, helping them build firm foundations for eternity. Following Jesus means everything will change. Following Jesus means changing what we value. Um, we're no longer living for today. There'll be a change in the way that we, we love. The way we love will be modelled in the way that God has loved us. There'll be a change in the way that we see others. We'll be slow to judge and quick to be humble. And all of that, it doesn't come easily. It comes with sacrifice, comes with patience and discipline and conviction. If we're going to have that sort of changed life, then we need God to help us. And if we're going to have that sort of changed life, the work happens in the heart. That's where the change happens. And then it overflows. And so that's what you'll see In verses 43 to 45, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man or the good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And the evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For out of the overflow of their heart, their mouth speaks. You can hear what Jesus is saying, can't you? You can't hide who you are. What you are on the inside will out, will come out. Um, we have what we have in our hearts, you see in our actions. Jesus is saying you, you can't fake sincerity. It'd be Pretty cool if you could. You can't be something that you're not. We need to change from the heart and we need God to do that change in us. So we keep praying and we keep reading God's word and we keep attempting to put it into practice. We keep building those firm foundations. So the passage for today, it's Luke six twelve to 49. Um, Luke is telling Theophilus and us what Jesus taught his disciples. And we can expect that as followers of Jesus, he will change us. We'll become different people. Everything changes. What we value changes. How we love changes. How we see other people changes. And if we are genuine about following Jesus, listening to his words and putting them in practice, then you can expect your heart to be transformed as God works in your heart. Other people will see your genuine desire to be living for Jesus. It all builds on this foundation of Jesus' words. And so, yeah, question for us, well, how how firm are your foundations? How firm are the foundations you're building your life on? Are you building on Jesus' words or do you need to kind of do a bit of reassessment and reevaluate your priorities and what you're pouring your life into? Are your foundations firm or are there a couple of cracks in the wall? You need some underpinning work done. need to get in there and make some calls today, get some help rebuilding that foundation. As you think about your own situation, I think the same thing can be said about us as a church or even our denomination. We want to be building on Jesus' words and putting that into practice not moving on to our own wisdom or our own wise ideas or whatever. And so as a church, we want to be on about making followers of Jesus and growing followers of, followers of Jesus. And the way you do that is by continuing to teach God's word and apply it and let it change us. Undergirding everything we do as a church, we need good Bible teaching, don't we? It's just the way these things work. Um, let's pray for ourselves. And for our church, let's pray that we would be building on a firm foundation of Jesus' words. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would forgive us for not listening to Jesus' words. Lord, please forgive us for being distracted by so many other things, even things which feel like they're good. Lord, please forgive us for not listening to Jesus' words. Please humble us. Please be at work in our hearts. Please help us to listen to your word in the Bible and put it into practice. Please change our lives so that we're putting Jesus first in everything. Lord, please reassure us as we put our trust in Jesus. Please reassure us that we are in your kingdom. Lord, please keep changing the way that we love, the way that we view others. Lord, we pray that you would keep making us your children. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.